Amen. God's welcome. If you could join us right now in prayer as we just, before we start worshiping the Lord, Father, we just, we come to you, Lord, and we say thank you. As always, we thank you so much for our salvation. May us right now remember why we praise you, Lord. May we forever remember your goodness. May we forever remember your faithfulness, Father. And Father, we come right now, we pray, Lord, if there's anything in our hearts that needs to be healed, Lord, we pray you heal it right now. But right now, may you be praised in Jesus' mighty name. Spirit or flee from your presence If I go up to the heavens You are there If my bed lay in the depths If I rise up with the dawn Or I said when we see You are there I'm not forsaken For even in the silence You are there My debt is paid The blood of Jesus Is my guarantee You are there Spirit or flee from your presence If I go up to the heavens You are there If my bed lay in the depths If I rise up with the dawn Or I said I won't see you there I'm not forsaken For even in the silence You are near My debt is paid The blood of Jesus is my guarantee That you are there Lord, 
Lord, I know you're there Right here and right now, right here and right now, you with us. Right here and right now, right here and right now, right here and right now, Lord, you with us. Let me sing that out, right here and right now. Right here and right now, right here and right now, Lord, you with the So I believe you're there For your word is true And all we do, you're there You never leave, you never go Through thick and thin, we know you're there You never leave, you never go Through thick and thin, we know you're there know you there you stick closer than a brother and you wrap ends in my heart so you stick closer than a brother and you have captured my heart me for adoption for the praise of your glory glorious grace lavished on me such glorious grace abounding You've captured my heart with your love There's no end to the depths of your love You've captured my heart with your love Limitless the reach of your love See, you chose me to be holy for your pleasure and your will that has freed me, forgive it, forgive Catch you. 
Praises to you, Lord. 
sing that out Wonderful and righteous is our God Wonderful and righteous is our God Wonderful and righteous is our God Praises to you, anybody in this moment has a word, I would love for you to speak it out, that the body may be encouraged. I feel like there is a word in this place right now. I feel like I feel like what God is really calling us to do is to really bear our hearts before him bear everything that we are everything that we believe we're not to bring them before him for the Lord is rich in mercy for he is our high priest he searches us out he searches you, says the Lord. I search all things and nothing is, nothing is hidden. But I renew and I restore. I heal and I revive. Bear it all before me. We lay everything down before your throne. down before your throne. We lay everything down before your throne. 
nothing is hidden. We lay everything down before your throne. We lay everything down before your throne. We lay everything down before your throne. Nothing is hidden. We lay everything down before your throne. We lay everything down before your throne. We lay everything down before your Nothing is In the deepest night, you search our hearts. In the darkest time, you bring forth light. In the painful moments, you bring healing hands. In the times when we cannot see, you show us the way. You are all we need, but you are all Let's declare that together to us, Lord. You are all we need. You are all we need. You are all we need. Forever and ever. Forever and ever Oh, forever and ever Lord, you're all, you're all we
feel the Lord is saying to us right now, do not be afraid to approach me. The Lord is saying, do not be afraid to approach me. Father, you have told us, fear not. You have told us that we, through our faithful high priest, Jesus, your son, with whom you are well pleased, through him, we can enter your presence with freedom and confidence. The Lord wants to call you into his presence. He wants you to appear before him. He wants to see you. He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear your thanksgiving. He wants to answer your petition. He wants you to pour out your heart to Him and lay your burdens down. to you, Lord, with freedom and confidence. Lord, there is nothing that is hidden from you. Hallelujah. You know us inside and out. You know what we need even before we ask it. You are a good father. You give good gifts to your children who ask. You're not intending to hide yourself from us. You're not trying to make yourself hidden or confusing to us. Oh, Lord, you want us. Come on, friends, just bring yourself to Jesus. Bring everything right now, everything that is in your heart, everything that is on your mind. Bring everything to the Lord with hands lifted, every hand lifted in this room. We're not coming. We're not. I don't know who's sitting. If you're sitting, stand up. If you're even kneeling stand up get up and present yourself before the Lord say here I am Lord come on and lift your hands and praise we praise you Lord we thank you Lord we glorify you Lord hallelujah praise him praise him you are not disqualified from worship. Praise Him. Come to Him. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. You are good. You are kind. You are good. You are kind.
Hallelujah. Oh, Lord, today we take hold of you. For in your great mercy, you are eager to show us mercy. You delight to show us mercy. Oh, Lord, so we come if there is a sin to be confessed. If, there is, if it's been lukewarm, if it's been compromised, if, if we just feel defiled, God, we come to you because you delight to show mercy. You delight to answer our prayers. If there is a need, if there is a burden, you are eager to hear us and to answer our prayers in Jesus' name. And you said if we ask anything in his name, you will do it for us. Hallelujah. And you gladly receive our praise and worship. And you are worthy of all our praise and worship, Lord. We come to you, Lord, for you are worthy of our trust. You are the one we pray to. You are the one we trust. You are the creator in heavens and earth. And, and apart from you, we lack no good thing. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all you do for us, Lord. Thank you for thank you for being so willing, so desirous to be with us, Lord. May we just rebuke any devil's lie to the contrary. We present ourselves to you, Lord. Thank you for accepting us. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Find us holy and pleasing to you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We bless you. In the name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Come on. I made a mistake in my wording there. I said in prayer, apart from you, we lack no good thing. I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was conflating, apart from me, you can do nothing, what Jesus said when he's the, he is the vine, we are the branches, and then, and then Psalm 23, I lack, I lack no good thing, something to that effect, you know, I shall not, I shall not need anything, basically, because I have him, so the Lord knows, he's good. Well, we're going to get into Acts 26 of the Pentecostal Handbook, and I think this is going to be real exciting, we're going to hear Paul's testimony uh, once again, let's welcome up our pastor in the batter's box. Come on, here he is. Joe Irostek. Amen. Thank you, man of God. Praise the Lord. How many love Jesus? Amen. Let's open up those Bibles to Acts chapter 26. God is going to teach us wonderful, amazing things today. So we're going to take a look at that. Joe B., before I forget, make sure you uh, steady this pulpit between classes today. Uh, just figure it out with Lawrence. Maybe something adjusted needs to happen down there. I know you guys in the youth use it as well. So in Acts chapter 26, we are going to deal with some exciting things today. Paul gives his defense. It's going to be awesome. Uh, we call it the Pentecostal Handbook because the book of Acts was written by Pentecostals for Pentecostals. So today in the Pentecostal Handbook, we're going to learn about Paul making his defense before King Agrippa and Governor Festus, who was uh, replaced, who replaced rather Governor Felix, which was in chapters before. Paul's ability to summarize his testimony in the gospel is nothing short of divine inspiration. So it's divine inspiration because it became holy scripture for us, but we also know it was inspired by God in that moment. His supernatural ability is an example for all people, though not divinely inspired the same way, in times of persecution to answer their objectors. Let's look at chap uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 19. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, uh, Jesus told us that we would come before governors and leaders, and we ought not to worry about what to say, because the Holy Spirit will give us the, uh, the words to say. I wonder what the frozen chosen have to say about this. Those who get on us as Pentecostals, and they say this, the Lord doesn't speak anymore. They actually make memes about this, about the Lord saying, and it will be, uh, the Lord told me, dot, 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 and then it will show the Bible, and that's all I need, and then it will say after that, you know. So in their mindset, God does not speak anymore except through the Bible, and you will not hear personal words from the Lord. Well, that makes Jesus a liar then because Jesus said in Matthew 10, 19, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. And then uh, those who get it twisted, especially those in the sassy camp of the non-Pentecostals, I have no problem with the Baptists and so forth, non-denominational people who don't see it the way we do. We're right, they're wrong, it's end of discussion, let's move on, right? Uh, don't start no stuff, won't be no stuff, okay? But the ones I have a problem with who now actually want to say we're contradicting the Scripture, if we are sola scriptura-based people, if we believe only the Word of God is the revelation of God, profitable for teaching and rebuking, correcting, etc., 2 Timothy 3.16, they now want to say every time we get a word, it has to be divine scripture, uh, current revelation, and now we have a new Book of Mormon, in other words. And they say, see, that's why you guys can't either, you either believe in the scripture sufficient or you have to believe in progressive revelation. Well, not according to Jesus because of the defense that they're making, according to Jesus, is coming directly from the Spirit, but it's not considered scripture. So there's a difference between God speaking through us in a general sense and then him speaking theanustas, God breathed scripture in a specific sense. Can I get an amen? Do not let people twist you up like that. And I've seen it happen online, and I'm seeing it go down right now with different uh, debaters. So uh, one of Dr. Michael Brown's opponents that he'll be debating in June on the gifts of the Spirit really says this, and they think it's such a good point. They think that somehow we're contradicting our belief in sola scriptura. If that was true, then that means every time these apostles and the disciples listening, because there wasn't only the 12, there was at least 120 that were faithful, if not more, 500 witnesses, Paul said that every time they went before their leaders and spoke, we're supposed to have it as Scripture. We don't even hear anything about James, the brother of John, getting beheaded. You're telling me he didn't speak anything? Well, it's supposed to be Scripture. Where is it? So then they get into their last little, uh, little uh, place they hide is they say, well, technically it was, but we just don't have it, so it wasn't useful for us. And then they say this particular passage ended with the apostolic age. Well, come on. Are you now saying that God just took his spirit whoop, right off the planet? And now, boys, uh, you're standing bef before Kun Kim Jong-un. It's up to you what you say now. No, come on now. As long as the spirit is here upon the earth, well, as long as the church is upon the earth, the spirit is upon the earth. Can I get an amen? I mean, there's no expiration date to the Holy Spirit used by 90 A.D. before John, the last apostle, dies, or it's going bad. Could you imagine those saints at that time? They wake up one morning, and they feel like Saul. The Holy Spirit has left them, and they wake up, and they go, what's happened? What's wrong? The Holy Spirit's gone. Where are you, Holy Spirit? No, he never expired. He's still here, and that's why we're sola scriptura, and that's why we're Pentecostal. So Paul shows us that the Holy Spirit can speak through us in times of persecution. And I am so saddened to see what's happening right now around the world, especially in Muslim countries like Indonesia.
which those of you who do Muslim apologetics, Indonesia was always a place that the Muslim apologists would point to and say, see, this is a Muslim nation with majority Muslims and the Christians aren't persecuted. Well, how is that working out now? Just another example of how the Muslim nations always, always, the closer they get to the Quran, tend more towards the life of Muhammad, which was a genocidal maniac, and they start persecuting Christians. And so pray for your brothers and sisters right now in Indonesia. They are being attacked right now. That's on the frontline news of Open Doors USA. You can see that on their Facebook page. So for our brothers and sisters, literally now, and Muslim communist nations, when they stand before their persecutors, God is with them and he'll be with you. Amen? Amen. Let's go to Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So where are we at here in the story? Paul was arrested in Jerusalem on false charges of the Jews that were there. They tried to kill him. He said he was a Roman citizen, so they, uh, the Romans protected him. Then there was a plot against his life, so the Romans brought him to Caesarea under Felix, who's now been replaced by Festus. Festus is there trying to do a favor for the Jews to at least keep them arrested or keep them confined, but he can't have anything, he doesn't know anything against them. So he's trying to get him to go back to Jerusalem to make the Jews happy. So whether he knows or not, so that the Jews can do that ambush and kill him. But Paul then appeals to Caesar and says, no, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to the Supreme Court of the land. I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve the best treatment, which I believe was of God. And now uh, Felix here is saying, uh, Festus rather, is saying, which one is it, Felix or Festus? Festus. Yes, Festus is now saying, hey, I don't have anything to, to bring you uh, before uh, Caesar with, so King Agrippa is going to help me now to get something to write about you as you go to Caesar. Who is King Agrippa? King Agrippa is a proxy king, a puppy king, a puppet king, not a puppy king, a puppet king by the Roman government over Judea. So remember when they would take over the world as the Romans did, they put kings over land so that people would have some kind of uh, a sense of uniqueness or uh, trust with the government. And uh, King Agrippa is here probably having an, he's King Agrippa too, has probably had, is having an incestuous relationship with his sister, as we've learned from Josephus in history. And so now uh, he, Paul's going to tell his story. Agrippa's supposed to give Festus now something to write so he can send him off to Rome to be with Caesar. And we only have two more chapters after this, 27 and 28. So Paul motioned with his hand and began to make his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. King Agrippa here is also known as King Agrippa II. His dad was King Agrippa I, who was the son of King Herod. King Herod was a convert to Judaism, or rather his family was. So they weren't Jewish by birth, but Jewish by uh, conversion. And you guys can study more about that, but that's just really what I got from that. They might have married somebody that was Jewish. I think one of the Herods married somebody that was Jewish, and, and that was what was going on with the adulterous affair with John the Baptist. Just look that up and see if they ever married any Jewish women.
because the genealogy passes through G Jewish women. So Paul's basically saying, hey, you are at least familiar with Judaism, King Agrippa. You know what we're talking about when we talk about the law and the prophets. And that's going to come up, and that came up in uh, Jared's message as well. And what do we call the law and the prophets in, in Hebrew? The Tanakh. But what do we call them? The something and the something. The Nebaim and the Tetavim. Ketavim. There you go. You guys remember that? That's just another way of saying the Law and the Prophets. Or the Tanakh is the Old Testament. The Torah is the first four, uh, five books. And then the, law, uh, the Prophets come under everything else, or the writings, as it was known at that time. Um, another thing that we want to see here is that he says, uh, it's not true what the Jews have said about me. So now remember this. Paul did not break Roman law or Jewish law, nor did Jesus. Even if they want to say he was blaspheming, it's not true. Jesus is who he said he was, so Jesus wasn't blaspheming. And for Paul to say Jesus was who he said he was, wasn't blaspheming. So there really should have never been any accusation against them, not of Jewish law nor of Roman law. And another thing to understand in church history, after the Jews themselves get uh, pillaged in 70 AD by the Roman government, and that's when the temple's destroyed, the Jewish persecution pretty much stops. So the early church is mostly Jewish persecution in the, in the book of Acts, and then after 70 AD it turns to Roman persecution. In church history you will see that most of our apologetic guys are writing inter, uh, to, to problems within the um, the church, interfaith dialogue in that sense, like going against what uh, Gnostics are saying and so forth. But the majority of it in their attention is actually to Roman leaders saying, we're not who you guys think we are. We're not atheists. They were accused of being atheists because they didn't worship all the Roman gods. They were accused of being uh, cannibalists because they took communion. And they're defending themselves. And that's where, like, Justin Martyr and others use philosophy and a lot of Roman history, very similar to what Paul did on Mars Hill, to try to defend themselves. But since Paul has not one uh, Roman law against him, he only makes a Jewish defense. He has no reason to use anything of Rome to defend himself because there's not even a charge by Rome against him at this time. But like I said, they started to make charges against them. Oh, and by the way, I just got on Craig Keener's interview over the book of Acts. He wrote a four-volume series uh, uh, commentary on it, which would be totally beast if I was teaching a class to have it here, you know. Uh, and he does a talk with McClanchy or something. I forget what this guy's name is on YouTube. If you guys want it, just request it. Tag me in this post right here in, in this live feed, and I'll put it up for you. But one of the things Keener was talking about some of the things we already know that this is not fiction, this is not just a novel, this is histor history, but it's like a historical biography. But one of the coolest things he talked about was a possible reason that Luke was writing this, and I, I had mentioned kind of a little, a little bit about this, but I thought he tied it in even better, and that was um, Paul's defense in the book of Acts at the time the book of Acts is written, is really not so much for the Jewish people, but really for the Roman people as they're coming to Christ to know he's not seditious. Because think about it, he's in jail the latter part of his life. All these churches are really growing. And so the book of Acts was meant to say, hey, Jesus died under the Romans, but he wasn't really seditious. And Paul is now arrested, but he wasn't seditious. And so put yourself in the mindset of somebody from Ephesus 
Ephesus that's now coming to the church of Ephesus, and all you know is that your church was started by a guy named Paul who wrote you this letter, Ephesians, and one of his traveling companions gave you the gospel of Luke, right? And you're growing, and the church is growing, and you find out your apostles in jail. What would help you understand how your apostle got to jail and why he's there? The book of Acts. So it would give you comfort to know this is who he was. And as you look at the book of Acts, it doesn't say he's not having riots and getting arrested. So it's not a fictional account. And Keener was talking about this. It tells you there's riots. It tells you that, 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 that there's a lot of trouble going on wherever Paul goes, like how they said he's, you know, they're turning the world upside down, but it was really right side up. But, but what they're showing you is the Christian especially Paul, are never starting the riots. They're not a revolutionary of political force. And so you go through the book, right? And now you see Paul is always the Christians, especially, but Paul, I mean, the Christians in general, but Paul especially, are the victims. They're the victims of riots. I just thought that was amazing, right? And especially if you were a Jew, you could also apply it that way, just as strong, uh, that if you were coming to Christ and you were hearing that, the, you know, your, your founder, Jesus, was, was, was arrested by the Jews, and the same thing now, Paul's arrested by the Jew. As a Jewish person, you would find confidence to see, oh, these were just trumped up charges. These were not really legitimate laws that they were breaking in the Jewish faith. Uh, so I thought that was awesome, but um, I, I just wanted to mention that because at the end of his life, he's making a defense before Roman governors, and that's what he appeals to Caesar for, and eventually gets beheaded under Nero, so we don't have, we don't have those conversations of what he was saying if he met with Nero or what happened. That was the leader of Rome at that time. Okay, now verse 4. Oh, yeah, going back. Did they ever marry any of the Herod's Jewish women? Herod the Great had two wives, both named Yes, yes, yes. That's what I thought. Okay, so thank you for confirming that because I knew it had something to do. Because I was the guy that one of the, the Herods was committing adultery, right? And that was John the Baptist was all upset about that. And I had to be on one of those women. Yeah, that was Herod, the second Herod. Okay. Okay. Good, so maybe not so much John the Baptist's Herod then. Or was that, that's the same Herod. The Herod that killed John the Baptist is the same Herod that killed Jesus, right? No, the, I'm talking about the one that persecuted baby Jesus. That's the one who was married to Jews? Okay, so the one who was married to Jews, uh, the one who was, yeah, married to Jews is the one who killed babies in the time of Jesus. The next Herod after that, did he have a Jewish wife? Yeah, look up that. We're just learning with you guys. I mean, history's not my strong point. I think Jared's better at it than me, but it's always, you can just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. More questions, more questions, you know. So now we're wanting to know who were they married to. Okay, verse 4. The Jewish people all know the way of life, oh, excuse me, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. Here's his defense. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. Because remember, he was from Turkey, which would be a different country than uh, Israel at that time. Uh, in my own country, Tarsus was in Turkey. And in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Paul also mentions that in Philippians chapter 3, 5-6. through six. And now, it is because of my hope 
in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God in night, day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it an incredible thing that God raises the dead? So he says, I have done nothing wrong, but simply believed what my people believe. Right here is a Jewish website, Judaism 101. Here are their beliefs about the Messiah, the Mashiach. Here they take the scriptures of the Old Testament, and I have it uh, tagged in our uh, notes for today, and also from the Talmud, the traditions of the Jewish people, and they begin to share these prophecies. This is what they believe, and it's very similar to what the Pharisees of Paul's time believed. They believed that the Messiah was going to be a normal man, not of any supernatural birth, but a normal man like David, like a man who would become a conquering king in Israel that would conquer the world because God would be with him. And then God would have a resurrection of the dead. Those who were good in times past would come forward and they would reign with the Messiah. Those who were wicked would be consigned to everlasting shame. And then forever, the Jewish people would rule over the world in some type of a glorified state as the world continues to live and die, that they would live a normal kind of existence, but the Jewish people would almost be like lowercase g God superheroes among them. So that's kind of their eschatology. It wasn't go up to heaven, and it wasn't the, the world ends. It's that it keeps on going with them, though, now as the Thors, in other words, the indestructible ones living among the people. What was the part that they missed? The suffering prophecies, the ones of Isaiah 53. They also missed the promises that God was going to raise up Gentiles to be in the kingdom as well. So they missed them. They were staring them right in the face, but they were missing them. So when you read a website like Judaism 101, and it talks about what the Messiah will do in the Messianic age and how he'll rule over the people, they then tell you why they don't believe it was Jesus. Okay, so why isn't it Jesus? Well, first of all, the Messiah wasn't going to be the Son of God or have a God complex or walk around talking like God. So whatever Jesus was doing, it wasn't a good Jew. He wasn't a good Jewish boy. Good Jewish boys don't act like they're God, okay? That's from paganism. That's not, that's not what a good Jew would do. The next thing is, no Jew said that he was going to die for the whole human race. So they don't see those scriptures in Isaiah. And that's why we always go right there with them. When Dr. Michael Brown debates Jewish rabbis, it's usually over these prophecies, and he, and he nails them on it because it does say that this person in Isaiah 53 would bear the burdens of their people. Okay? But they didn't see it that way. They thought maybe the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was just the Israelite nation in general being personified as a person. It would suffer as a nation for their own sins, etc. 
Another thing, and I just heard this in, in Dr. Michael Brown's most recent debate with the Jewish rabbi, is that since there's not peace on earth, there's not a kingdom literally on earth, that Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. The kingdom literally didn't come. Lions are not laying with lambs. The resurrection hasn't happened. All of these things have not happened. Well, what's once again their problem? They're not seeing the time of the Gentiles, the age of the church bringing the nations in, which fulfill all of those other prophecies. But those are their major reasons. Jesus is not God. Uh, there's no God in the flesh coming. Uh, there's not going to be uh, two coming. So the, the first time the Messiah comes, there needs to be conquering you know, of the, of the world. And then lastly, uh, the very fact that there isn't this peace and this kingdom, they don't receive Jesus. So you can see that that's exactly what Paul is dealing with at that time. Literally, that's exactly what he's dealing with. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So now they're saying Jesus is a blasphemer, and then now anybody who sides with Jesus calling him the Messiah, going even one step further, God in the flesh, the Son of God, the eternal God who met with Abraham on the plains of Mamre in Deuteronomy, uh, Genesis 18, you're now blaspheming. So that's what, what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I've been a great Jew and is it too much to believe that God can raise the Messiah from the dead? No, that's not a problem. We do believe in the resurrection. And so I just believe in everything that y'all believe in, but I believe it's happened. And so that's what we need to say when we meet Jewish people. We believe in everything you believe in, for the most part. Some Jews believe in reincarnation, and that was why sometimes it was even brought up in Jesus' day. Um, but we believe in the Old Testament, right? We believe in this. We just believe it happened through Jesus. And that was exactly what Paul was saying. Did we find out if any of the other Herods married Jewish people? Um, Herodias. Herodias. Yes. She was a Jew, wasn't she? Herodias, who married... Okay, since there's not a mic on you, take your time so we can walk it through because I was doing a lot of talking last time with you guys and the, the podcast can't hear it. Okay, so long story short, that is what I'm talking about. Herodias, the one who killed John the Baptist um, and the one that, that was also the hair that, had, that was under the time of Jesus, um, was that woman a Jew? Take your time. Let me know. Don't let me forget it. And let me know when you find out, please. Okay, Paul says, I too was convinced, verse 9, that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. And on the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Okay, so we see him recounting his time of persecuting the church, probably starting with Stephen. He's saying, I, I was just like them. I wanted them dead. I was persecuting them. Now, if you notice in there, he says, but they, were, they, but they belonged to the Lord, right? So they belonged to the God of Israel, but I didn't know it at that time. Verse 11, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. What was the thing he was trying to force them to blaspheme? By doing one of two, by, in one of two ways. When they said Jesus was Lord, he thought that was blaspheme, so he would force them to say it in front of him again so he would have reasons to kill them. 
Or they would say Jesus is Lord and he would force them to take it back or he would kill them. We don't know how it was, but anyways, these Christians were trying, he was trying to force them to have charges of blasphemy because saying Jesus is Lord is not just saying Jesus is master or Jesus is a good guy. According to the Old Testament, Lord, Yohevahe, the, the word that we use for Yahweh, Lord meant the God of Israel. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Jesus is the God of Israel. And then that not only puts you in opposition with the Jews, because the Jews believed in the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord, thy God is one. So you can't say he's two, but we believe the, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are Lord. Not three lords, but one Lord sharing uh, the nature in three separate persons. But not only was Jesus as his Lord a affront against the Jewish faith, which they thought was blasphemy, which it wasn't. It was just ascribing to Jesus the glory due his name. The Romans believed it was blasphemy as well. Why? Because you could have all the gods you want, but Caesar is your Lord. Caesar is your God among men. And that's how they took it, right? Caesar's my, you know, supposed to be my God here. He's, he's representative of the gods. He's the God-man. And they were saying, no, Jesus is the only God-man. There is no God-man. So you can see how that put them at odds with Jews and Romans. And they uh, accused Jesus of doing the same thing in Matthew 26, 63. Let's just go there. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. Obviously, Jesus is not blaspheming, but that's what they thought. And uh, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So now that's what we're talking about. They never saw the Messiah as a divine being. Uh, some of them did, by the way. Uh, Michael Brown is really good at looking back in Jewish history and finding some hints of truth that were there that they, they thought that, that the word was going to be made manifest and that would be the Messiah and he would have divine attributes. There's some, some study into that. Uh, but but here, the, the idea for them is, you know, you're going way too far. First of all, saying you're the Messiah, that's crazy. We don't like that. We're not going to let you do that. But then the Son of God part is really what gave them the right to kill Jesus because that would be under the blasphemy law. And then in verse 64, Jesus responds, You have said so, Jesus replied, But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, never misunderstand the title Son of Man as less than a divine title. Son of God is also a divine title too. But Son of Man, according to Daniel chapter 7, receives worship and is given all power and authority by the Ancient of Days. So we have to understand that the Son of Man is also a divine title. Okay? Did we hear anything about the wife there? And also you're talking just a little bit loud, sir, so just whisper. Thank you. If you have questions. Okay, Jared, did we find out if uh, the wife was Jewish? Herod the Great married Miriam. Miriam was Jewish. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. The first Bernice, because there's actually two Bernices. So she's in the family line. Herodias, the one who had John the Baptist killed, was in the family line that would make her a Jew too. As much as we can tell. We'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. And there was incest in the family. We knew that uh, from before. Or at least it would, they were accused of that. 
Okay, so Paul's telling his testimony here. He was once a persecutor, verse 10. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of chief priests. I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Kick against the goats is a saying that I'll help you uh, know right now. Kicking against the goads is a way of saying kicking against something that is hard and unmovable. And I'll show you here what it means. Kicking against the goads there, or kicking against the pricks as it is in one translation, is a Greek proverb. But it was also familiar to the Jews and anyone who made a living in agriculture. An ox goad was a stick with a pointed piece of iron on its tip used to prod the oxen when moving. So the goad or the prick is the same thing. The farmer would prick the animal to steer it into the right direction. Sometimes the animal would rebel by kicking out at the prick, and this would result in the prick being driven even further into the flesh. In essence, the more an ox rebelled, the more it suffered. Thus, Jesus' words to Saul on the road to Damascus, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. So the harder you kick against Christianity, the more you will suffer. The more you will suffer. That's what that means. And he's recounting his testimony. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Whoa, that's quite a bit. Does anybody notice a contradiction possibly here? Look to Acts chapter 9, verse 5, and see if you notice a contradiction, or what would be a supposed contradiction. Acts chapter 9, verses 5 through 6. Paul's encounter recorded by Luke when it happened there. Yes, sir. Well, go further with that. Develop it. It's not what I'm looking for quite yet, so develop it more. Jackie, you going to rescue the students by telling us? Anybody? Let me save time. Verses 5 and 6 is all Luke records Jesus said to Paul at that encounter. Here in the recounting of his testimony before King Agrippa, he says a whole lot. As a matter of fact, there are some of the things that aren't even recorded in the whole entire chapter that Paul 
has said to him. He's recounting here now in Acts chapter 26 that you go through this whole chapter here, there's no recounting of anything that says uh, he's going to be a light unto the Gentiles, uh, as the Bible says here, and uh, pre preach the forgiveness of sins and have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, Jesus saying in me. So what's going on here? Is Luke embellishing the story? Uh, is Paul embellishing the story? And Luke's just going along with it, going, well, I guess Paul's just making up stuff here now, so I guess i got to record that down. No. This goes back to understanding how they understood Scripture, as we talked about them generically referring to the Scriptures as the writings and sometimes even throwing a name upon a, a book that wasn't even the actual author of the quote. Uh, they did this because they would oftentimes look at smaller prophets grouped in together under larger prophets' names. They would look at the Old Testament, sometimes just in two categories, the, the law and the prophets. And here's another way of Paul explaining to us that when God spoke to him that day and all the other times, he would now put it back into this moment because Jesus told him. Jesus told him. And so his justification would be one of two things. I don't know because it's never said. Would be one of two things. Either A, Jesus always was saying this, and I just heard it in different times. Or B, when Jesus said it in different times, I'm putting it back into this story because now I know what God's plan was for me. But it wasn't a contradiction. I find myself doing that oftentimes as a preacher, going back to the time when I first got saved, adding all of the things that God has said to me thus far. And there's nothing contradicting about it because they didn't look at history the same way we do. They don't see themselves as being held to the standard of a timeline or the authorship of those books and the, the way we would see it. For them, it was just God speaks. God has said, God does these things. I'm a receptive of what God has done. And so for many of us in a Western mindset, we get bothered by that. We, we, we think that when we harmonize the Bible like a Bart Ehrman, and it doesn't match up perfectly. Well, how many blind men were there? Was there two or was there one? You know, Or you know, uh, uh, who came to the tomb first? Was it the woman or was it the men? Or what, you know, what happened here? And we, we, we in Western mindset think we're creating contradictions, but really all we're doing is showing our weakness and understanding the culture at that time. And so it's wrong to read into things that a Western historian would expect to find in an ancient historian of the Middle East. I'm totally okay with Paul in either one of those explanations. He may have said, hey, God told me all of that on that day, and uh, Luke didn't write it down when he wrote down the encounter that I had the first time. So it's cool. I'm co totally cool with that. Or Paul could say to me, there's the, these are also some of the other words that said to me, that God said to me, like in Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 46, uh, God gave me a word about the Gentiles. And now when I'm standing before the king, I want him to know that God was speaking to me about all these things. So it says, Acts 13, 46, and Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly and said, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles for this is what the Lord has commanded. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, etc." So uh, it's easier for most of us to say this was what Paul got in his calling the very first day, and we can move on from there. I, I think that's totally acceptable, but I'm even okay with stretching the things, as I was saying before, about sometimes they'll say, well, Jeremiah didn't say this, it was the one prophet. So find out that, that one scripture where they attribute it to Jeremiah, and that's just because Jeremiah would be a book. 
And if Jeremiah's scrolls, the book of Jeremiah contained the smaller books, then this saying, it came from Jeremiah, in their mind, it would be, it came from this volume. That was the volume I had it in. I had it in the Jeremiah volume. And that wouldn't have been a problem to them because the Jeremiah volume of their scrolls still was God speaking. Does everybody understand? Okay. So we don't shy away from those things. We just take our time to understand where they were coming from. And by the way, people at the time of the writing, which Craig Kinger noted as well, is that these people were alive when the book of Acts was being written. This is an early history of the church. Most of the time, historical narratives were written hundreds of years after the fact, and he gives all the examples about Rome and, and Alexander the Great and Greece and all of these things. This is written in the time of the people alive. That's why he's so particular to mention the right names, the right details, the right locations. If there was ever an instance that Paul was somehow a liar or contradicting himself, we would have that in the records. Those were never his accusations. So what we would think, Joe B., in the modern mindset, like a Bart Ehrman accusation, nobody was making that because everybody knew in the ancient world that's how things were done. So if you would have stood before, you know, if one of the Jews would have stood up at that time and goes, I object. That's not what he said happened in, in, in his first encounter when he testified before us. He didn't say all of that. He's lying. He's li they wouldn't have, nobody would have said that. They would have, you know, the whole courtroom would have said, he's not lying. This is the way he's summarizing his story. What is that account that I'm thinking of? Pause, please. Thank you. Matthew 27, 9 and 10, the account of Judas hanging himself is ascribed to what prophet? Jeremiah, but it's really found in where? Zechariah. And why would that be so? Zechariah would be a smaller book, probably contained in the post-exile books of Jeremiah and so forth, you know, from Jeremiah onward, and they would have it as one book. So they would say, I, uh, this is from Jeremiah in the book of their scrolls. It's like how we would say generically, it's from the Bible. Do you guys understand? So no one, and, and like I said, no one's counting that as a contradiction. No one in the time is saying, we don't know what we're talking about. Every now and then, Jewish people will be a little bit sassy and try to hold that against the Christian faith by looking at our New Testament saying, you guys are misquoting things. But then Dr. Michael Brown will say, uh, all the other times in their history they did it and say, you're just being selective now because you're not being honest. This is how Jewish people, ancient people did history, even among uh, the other cultures. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Oh, let me just back up here and now say the actual word here. Now notice this. This is the Arminian handbook, not the Calvinist handbook. And we can also say that it's the holiness handbook, the finished work handbook, the Wesleyan handbook on sanctification. Because when you receive forgiveness of sins, what also do you receive? Sanctification. Sanctification isn't something that I'm hoping for in the future, right, Joe B.? Come on, let me know if that professor needs some help. I would willingly come. I'm in uh, Dr. Pickens' class today. I was in his first class, and I'll be in his second class. Does anybody have Dr. Pickens' third period? You guys do? Okay, I'll be in your class today. So I have no problem going there and discussing our view on sanctification because it's clear sanctification happens at salvation. Can it be ongoing? Yes. The Bible talks about ongoing salvation, ongoing filling of the Spirit, ongoing sanctification, ongoing cleansing, but it's always from the point of already being cleansed. And I have a great illustration for that this Sunday. Lord willing, I've I've gotten it from somebody else. It's going to be, remember when I did the rope thing and I showed you how small your, your present is compared to your future? This one is going to be very powerful as well. I'm not going to give it away. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to just take a few objects, and when I do it, boom, because it's going to be about being filled continually with the Spirit. 
and it's from the in him revelation. So it's not an empty cup always being filled. It's a filled cup remaining filled and overflowing, and you'll just have to go from there on that. Don't try to search it and get it, because I'm sure you'll find it. But that was his message. What was his message? To turn their eyes from darkness to light, to get out from under the power of Satan, to receive forgiveness of sin and be sanctified, to have a place among the sanctified. So that's why we don't believe in this divine um, uh, ordination in the sense where God forces people to make choices. God ordains us to be saved because he knows beforehand our choice to be saved. So God knows our choice ahead of time and then plans with that. But he's never subjected to our choice, and his foreknowledge never takes away our choice. So understand that. God knowing something in the future doesn't mean that he made it happen and took away free will. And then us being in God's timeline doesn't mean we get to choose things on our own either. We're simply obeying his timeline. So God's still sovereign, but we're still free. That's what I'm trying to have you guys understand. He's sovereign, but he sovereignly decided for us to have a choice. That was his sovereign choice. He could have made us otherwise, but he didn't. So the Calvinist handbook would have to be written totally different, and it's not written as a Calvinist God. It is written as a God who gave us freedom. And that's why he says in verse 19, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And I talked about that because uh, in the original uh, time when we dealt with him getting knocked off of uh, the donkey, whatever, is that Calvinists use this like, did Paul have a choice? You know, and they'll make a meme. Did Paul have a choice? Where's your free will now? Yes, he did have a choice because he didn't have a choice to get knocked off the horse or the donkey or whatever, but he had a choice to be obedient to the vision he received. That's exactly what he said. He said, I was not disobedient. He could have been. Uh, Saul was knocked down by the Lord with the prophets and, and got out of his clothes and, uh, you know, wouldn't be buck naked, but would be like in his ephod or whatever or, or a garment underneath. And he danced with the prophets. He had great moves of the Spirit. But what happened? He disobeyed God. Spirit of God left him. Demonic spirits came. David had to play the, the harp to relieve him of the de demonic activity. That could have been the same story of Paul. And God would have raised up somebody else. So we know that this is a book of choice. You choose to be obedient to the call, and that's where you guys all have to make your choice. Will you be obedient to your call? First to those in Damascus, then he tells this story about how he was obedient to the call. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, then to the Gentiles. Now here's his message. What did he preach? I preached everywhere that they should have their best life now and come to my conferences and buy my books. I preached to them that they're Lazarus, and then they're the woman with the issue of blood, and then I told them that they're blind Bartimaeus, and then I said, you're like Zacchaeus. Is up a sycamore tree. Is that what he taught him? No, he said, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Amen. Isn't that wonderful that we can preach just like Paul? You know, I, I sit down with preachers all the time, and they're always trying to discover that new allegorical formula that nobody else has found. Well, when I was reading the Bible, the Lord told me the five stones of David represent the fivefold ministry. Ooh, that's good, brother. But when I was reading the Bible, the staff of Moses represented the, the, the staff of authority. Ooh, that's good, brother. Oh, I was reading the Bible, and, the, and it's just like, come on, guys. Can we just read the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself? Or do we always have to be in some competition? Who can more allegorize the story? 
You know, literally, I heard a guy preach a whole story about being a donkey for Jesus. You know, Jesus rode in on the donkey, and it was never ridden before, and it was chosen to have the master ride on it. You know, and it's just, come on, be a donkey for Jesus. You know, I could say the King James right now, but I won't. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, how many more allegories? You know, and then another brother at SUM, you know, two by two going into the ark. There was only a few people, but there was a bunch of animals. I just want, I'm tired of dealing with the people. I want to know who wants to be an animal for Jesus. Two by two into the ark. I'm like, dear Lord, has it gotten that bad now? We have to call each other animals and donkeys. And who wants to be a donkey for Jesus? And and we just, and you know, and because they're gifted and because God uses them and all oh, that service is powerful, uh, we think we're getting the word. But we're getting the word despite that. We're getting it despite that nonsense. So just do what Paul did. Preach that people should repent of their sin. So that means he had to actually tell them about sin. Well, how do you tell people about sin? You use the law of God. You show them that they've broken the laws of God. What's the law for the New Testament believer? It's the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. They taught the law of God. And then they told people it was their choice to repent and turn to God. It once again wasn't a Calvinist method of salvation that God was choosing some and overlooking others just to display his mercy and his wrath, all for his glorious sovereignty. No, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. He wishes that all would turn to repentance. And Paul would say the same thing. It's your choice. Here's the law. Now make a decision. Do you turn and repent or do you keep living in it? And then that they were commanded to demonstrate their repentance, their metanoia is the word repentance, their change of mind and heart, that they were commanded to show it by their deeds. That's what Paul said to the, the elders there in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. We see that he says to them, I have declared to both the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm compelled to go to Jerusalem. That's the Pentecostal message. It always has been. And it's not a message of being saved by works. The gospel comes and brings faith, and we choose to accept it or reject it like the seed going into the ground. And when we accept Christ, repentance and those things will follow. Sometimes people want to call repentance a work, and then they say that unless you believe in faith, only salvation, if you attach repentance to it, you're outside of Christ. These are some fundamental Baptists. If you remember a few years ago, they met us out there. We got into an argument with them. They believe to attach any act to salvation other than faith is a false doctrine, and I've never met them until that point. I never heard that repentance being attached to faith was a bad thing. But once again, they have a point, and the point is we're not saved by our repentance. That is true. But the gospel, and Baptists do a good job of coming against their, their, their kin, the fundamental Baptists, like we do a good job of correcting the oneness Pentecostals and their false views of the Trinity. The Baptists do well. They, they wrote on this, that repentance is always attached to faith because it's what springs forth instantly as you have faith in God. You're going to then have uh, repentance for your sin. So it's a fruit of the faith, the true faith. And that's how Paul is really describing it here, that your true faith will have a fruit and it will bear fruit of repentance. And then repentance will have a fruit of good 
good deeds. So faith, repentance, good deeds. We're not saying we're saved by repentance and good deeds. Faith plus nothing equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Does everybody get that? So if you ever get in one of those conversations and you're like, why? Well, I think we're saying the same thing, and they keep drilling you saying, no, you're saying the wrong thing. You can say it just as we've said it uh, here. We're using the language of the apostles. And they may say that language is too loose for them. Well, if you have a problem with this, you know, he doesn't even mention faith here, but he does, like I said in the, in the sister verse 2 at Acts 20, uh, 20, 21. So he's clarifying that they turn to have repentance and have faith in God. Well, we know that Paul always believed that faith came first. It doesn't matter which way he phrases it or how it comes out in the conversation. You have to start with faith because without faith, you can't please God. Without faith, you can't do the first thing of repentance. Okay, so it, don't let people twist you up in that. It's biblical language, and that's the same thing with the biblical language of baptism. Well, does baptism save you? No, but it says it saves us right here. Well, in what context does he mean it saves us? Why is it always connected to salvation? Because it's a fruit. It's a deed of salvation. And here you see it so clearly that, that like I said, faith is not even mentioned here, but it's repentance, turn to God, demonstrate it by your works. And, and so you can just put it threefold. Faith, repentance, deeds, they, they, they come in. Instantly. But what comes first always? Faith. Amen? Faith. Everybody say faith. Thank you. Faith always comes first, but then there's repentance and good deeds. And this is why, excuse me, that is why some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So he now says, this is the only reason that they want to kill me. It's because I stopped thinking like them about Jesus. Now I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm preaching that people have to follow his message. This is why the Jews, that is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts to try to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So you see, he always saw it was God's plan, even though he was arrested. God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And then I have the prophecy of Daniel, which would go under prophets, Moses, under the law, that another one would rise up like him. That's Deuteronomy 18, 18, and that's not Muhammad. That, that People try to apply that to Muhammad, the Muslims, but that's so far from Muhammad. First of all, he had to be a Jew. Muhammad's an Arab of the Ishmaelites, and then he would be a Jew among his people like Moses. And what did Moses bring? A covenant. Jesus brought a covenant. Muhammad didn't bring any covenant. And then he would even be a greater, a greater one than Moses, and Jesus was greater than Moses as the builder of the house is greater than the house. And this is, what the, this is what they believed, the prophets and Moses, the prophets and the law. What did they believe? Verse 23, that the Messiah would suffer. Do you see that? That's the part they're missing, that the Messiah would suffer. And what's the other part they're missing? That the Messiah would suffer, rise from the dead, right? And would br bring the message of the light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So is he getting that from the New Testament? No. The New Testament believer's Bible was the Old Testament. You see Andy Stanley saying that the New Testament Christians unhitched from the Old Testament. We need to unhitch from Andy Stanley. It's been about time, by the way. It's been about time. Nothing surprising now with him. Uh, they never unhitched from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was their scriptures. That was their book. Someone else told me that they were at Assembly of God District Council, and when the guy said the early church didn't have the book, they had the, uh, they had the Holy Spirit. That is nonsense. They had the Holy Spirit and the book. 
They preached the book. That's all. What did Peter say on Pentecost? With the power of the Holy Spirit, he spoke from the prophets from the book. Amen. Don't let smart people have you believe dumb things. They may be smart. I know they're smart. I get it, friends. But that smart people can say dumb things too. Don't believe it just because authoritative people say it. People with authority can say dumb things. Nonsense is nonsense no matter who says it. Amen? Even with me. Test everything by the Word of God, it says. So here's where they missed it. They missed it by the suffering, which would lead to the rising of the dead. Because it goes hand in hand with the prophecy of Psalm 16.8, which was a favorite of the apostles, that you will not let your Holy One see decay. But David went and saw decay. This was not of David. This was speaking of Jesus. So the suffering and the resurrection go hand in hand because the righteous can't suffer innocently and not be vindicated by God. And so if the suffering of Jesus was greater than Job, Job just got... All of these things and got double at the end, you know, after the plagues. Uh, Jesus dies in his suffering. Well, Jesus is going to get greater. Jesus is going to get resurrection. That's what the prophets were saying. And then it's a light unto the Gentiles. The, the Messiah, Isaiah 49, 6, is a light unto the Gentiles. So the same places where it talks about the suffering servant, like Isaiah 53, also talk about the light coming to the Gentiles. Um, Isaiah 49, 6, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant. Uh, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach. See, if Jesus would have brought the kingdom as a conquering king at the time of his first coming, there would be no reaching. See, it says here that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. So the salvation now comes to the end of the earth, and then the kingdom comes, right? Now the gospel goes, then the kingdom judgment comes. So he's getting down. He's like full on preaching here. And at this point, Festus interrupts Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and it's reasonable. Somebody say reasonable faith. Man, you guys know I, I teach on this all the time, and I will until I meet Jesus. And I wish I would have known this earlier in my apologetic days. But don't let anyone ever just put you on the defense. You attack their worldview at the same time. Our faith is reasonable. Everyone has faith. Not all faith is reasonable. The Christian's faith is reasonable. Test the scientist or the atheist or whoever thinks they're so smart and says, I don't have faith. Examine their foundation, and you will see not only do they have things they believe in, they have make-believe. They're no different than, than people believing in fantasies, okay? So you will see real truth, real reason is with God. Reasonable faith. The king is familiar with these things. Come on, King Agrippa, you know about the prophets. I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of these things have escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Look at Paul. I love him. He's preaching right there to the king now. The Holy Spirit's giving him words just like Jesus said it would happen. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Praise God. Isn't that the boldness of our apostles right there? I love Paul. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them, basically like, we're done. 
After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. So there's the, a little background to the book of Acts. See, he, the, the author Luke is showing us that all the riots from the Jews were their fault. He's done nothing wrong. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so in the next two chapters, we're going to hear about his journey to Rome on a ship, the shipwreck, etc. And um, what an amazing book to tell us this story about Paul and his boldness. And uh, he could have been released. Yes, he could have been. But he chose to go this way. Do I believe he heard from God? Yes. I believe uh, the prophet Agabus was right to see what was happening in the future. But Paul was right to go forward as well. He saw this as God ordained. And we're still here in Caesarea. And then the next two chapters, we're going to see Paul go from Caesarea all the way up through here to these islands to Rome. And that's where the, uh, the book of Acts is going to end. We're still here in the timeline that I've showed you in the Caesarea imprisonment. But we're right towards the end, Acts chapter 26 here, verse 33. By this time, Galatians, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans has been written by our best accounts. The rest of his letters will be written afterward. I want to close out today with something that hopefully will challenge you from what we learned from Paul, that we would all have the same heart of Paul that desires to see everyone become a Christian. That even like Jesus, while on the cross, we're still preaching the gospel and handing out the life raft. Amen? Even like Paul there on trial, we're saying, yes, King, I want you to become a Christian. And 300 years later, the Roman Empire bowed its knee to Jesus, not because of what political powers or military powers did, but because of the power of the gospel. Amen? Father, we thank you today for this wonderful time together. We thank you for your word. May we all have a place among those who are sanctified. May we continue to bring forth the good deeds, bringing forth the fruit of repentance, showing that you are in our lives. May we be like Paul, who pre that we preach with boldness and, and power, Lord, no matter where we are, even if we're persecuted like they are in some parts of the world right now, that, Lord, we will see even high officials come to the gospel so that, Lord, this message can be a light to all all the nations, even the nations that we have represented in this city right now, all the different nations that we have represented, may we uh, bring your gospel to them in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus.